One of the most important measures of you as a person is what you rejoice in. You rejoice in those things that you believe give you a sense of protection or a sense of provision or a sense of purpose. In other words, you rejoice in things that do you good. Now this, by the way, is a good thing. We have a convenient test to see where our heart is. What, is, what am I rejoicing in right now? And because the Lord has given us this capacity, we can stop and mentally ask ourselves, what am I rejoicing in right now? Then we can ask Jesus, we can ask God the Spirit and say, is this worth rejoicing in? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Am I, for example, rejoicing in some particular fantasy that I allow to consume me when I'm free to think about what I want to think about? Or do I rejoice in the truth? Do I discipline my mind to think about the truth, especially the truth of the reality of Christ? So often we find ourselves going down mindless paths and we forget who we are, what we're doing, why we're here. But we need to remember the truth, especially the truth of the reality of Christ. We have quoted Abraham Kuyper before where he says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! There is no aspect of your life over which Christ does not cry, Mine. How do you sleep? Christ calls that mine. What do you think about when you're playing a game on your computer or you're watching a TV or you're reading your Bible? There is not a square inch over the whole domain of our existence over which Christ does not say, this is mine. Now, Satan, who is the father of lies and death, his words poison everything. Satan is our enemy and seeks to cause us to think on his words. And as we invest our time, our talents, and our treasures in meditating on his lies, our hearts will be poisoned too. Now we have to be careful when we say this. What about sporting events? Well, you know, the other night I watched the last five minutes of a basketball game. I was not thinking about John 3.16 at the time. <gasps> Is that sinful? No. Well, at least I don't think it is. <laughs> Pretty sure it is not. But my point is this. When we allow ourselves to drift off in these directions, we need to ask ourselves, whose truth am I believing? You know what was great about that basketball game? Those men on that court can do things that I could not do except in my dreams, right? 
And it's just incredible. I saw a guy like behind the backboard come back and put the ball in the net. I mean, that's just incredible. Praise Jesus that he has that power to do that and I get to enjoy it, right? And we remember Jesus' words. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And what we find as we come to Philippians, or any of the Bible, but this is particularly true with Paul, as we come to Paul's letter to the Philippians, what we find is an unapologetic statement of the truth. And what we find as we see this unapologetic statement of the truth is that when we are putting this into our minds and our hearts, we have joy. We rejoice because we have the truth. Now Paul calls us to rejoice as he here tonight concludes the first section following his introduction to Philippians. We must rejoice as we come together in unity and as we come together in unity to sacrifice for the kingdom of Christ. More on sacrifice next chapter. But this section of Philippians, Paul concludes tonight, began back in Philippians 1.27, where we saw that we are to live as heavenly citizens, and that this living is done as we do three things. We stand firm in one spirit, with one mind we are striving side by side for the faith of the good news, and we are not frightened in anything by your opponents. And when we so live, when we live like this, we will know from the bottom of our being, joy. So rejoice, Paul says, because I rejoice. This is one of my big ideas for our passage tonight, which I am going to read is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that... In the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, having begun in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, Paul tonight concludes this thought, especially the twin thoughts of, as I said a moment ago, unity within the church and the call for us to sacrifice for the good of the kingdom. Two of the very most important principles, themes, we find in Philippians. You and I must live as citizens of Christ's kingdom, standing together, and especially standing together when we suffer. Perhaps another way of stating this clearly 
is to say we must rejoice. Rejoice as you live your life in and for Christ in this world so that everyone may see to whom you belong. I might go so far as to say you would not be far from the truth if you said this is one of Paul's key themes in all of his writing. But we begin our exposition night with a quick review of what we did three weeks ago. I know we kind of had our Sunday evenings tossed up a little bit, but there were good reasons. But we're going to begin with a quick review of what we said three weeks ago and then tie it back into the passage as a whole. The big idea in the first two verses is work out what God has worked in. Verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, as I said last time we were here, we solved the two millennia old problem of the relationship between God's work and our work, right? You guys all understood that absolutely perfect and there's no debate or question. Okay, there we go. You'll remember I quoted John Murray in full, but I'm just going to give a brief quote tonight. Murray sums it up this way, because God works, we work. And then he says, the more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. We are to work out what God has worked in. God's power to accomplish kingdom purposes is at work in us, therefore trust his promise to do so. Work out what God has worked in. Now, I need to pause for a moment because this, these two verses are singular in their use for making this particular point. But we must remember, the Bible is not a book of answers. There are many answers. Indeed, there are all the answers you need. But the Bible never simply gives an answer to satisfy our curiosity. Oh my goodness, there's all kinds of questions I would love to have answered about the Bible that at this moment in time, all I can say is, I don't know and for the glory of God. Some of them we may never know the answer to. I don't know. There's another question we don't know the answer to, right? But... And this is absolutely crucial for honest Bible reading. In fact, it's absolutely crucial for honest discussion about whatever theological topic you wish to have. This is crucial because much confusion and much division in the church has happened because we have not defined words properly or we have not defined words biblically. So as we come to Philippians 2, 12, and 13, don't look at it as a verse to beat your theological opponents into submission with. Instead, come to Philippians 2, 12, and 13 and other passages like them and look at it in two ways. First, see it as a part of the whole. 
One of the things I really try to do as I preach is I, I try to bring it into context so that we see how it fits together with the surrounding passage. I do this because I consider it foremost in my preaching job is to teach you and remind myself how to go about studying God's Word on your own. I mean, let's just be honest. I'm not the greatest preacher in the world. And you guys can find much better preachers on the radio and on the internet. So if that's all you were looking for, you could find it. But... If I can help you know God's word better yourself, then I will have done my job. This is not about an argument. Instead, it's designed to give you hope, courage, and strength to continue to press on until Christ returns. Amen? But then, the second thing I want you to see this passage and other passages like it as, is I want you to see it as a recipe. Or maybe a better way of saying it is a thesaurus. In God's Word, we find the words God uses to talk about all kinds of subjects. And so, as we want to talk about these subjects, use God's words. Just say it the way He says it. Bible says right here, work out your salvation. Now maybe where you grew up, that wasn't a popular verse in your theology. But in, we must, because it's in God's word, exhort those Christians near you to work out their salvation. Then God says, God worked in you so that you could work. Well, maybe that's not popular in your family of theological discussions but it's what God says now don't get me wrong both of these phrases need to be unpacked and we did that three weeks ago you can go back and listen to that but exhort those brothers and sisters near you to trust God works therefore you work now, with this review, we need to move on and see how it fits with the rest of our paragraph. And as always, notice the therefore. In this case, the therefore is particularly important because there isn't one, but two. There are two therefores in this passage, verse 9 and verse 12, and both of them point back to what's going on in verses 5 through 8. And if you remember, that's where we learn that Jesus Christ is the obedient Lord. He is the pre-existent God of the universe who became man so that he could defeat death and bring glory to God and bring salvation to us. In other words, God worked. He did the work. How much of that did you do? Did you defeat death? Well, you can bring glory to God, but you can't bring salvation apart from him. But then we get to verse 9, and we see the first therefore. Because Jesus lived like this, therefore he is now known by all as the cosmic Lord. He is the obedient Lord, and therefore is the cosmic Lord. The Father exalt him. Again, God worked. And as we will see throughout Philippians 2, we must work. 
Christ's humble, obedient sacrifice is an example for you and me to imitate so that you and I can walk worthy of his good news. That's this passage. Philippians 1.27 to 2.18. And what we'll find in the rest of Philippians 2 is examples of how two particular men did that. And if you have eyes to see, then you will note this progression. Christ's work, therefore God exalted. Christ's work, therefore you and I must work. Or as we said last time, work out what God has worked in. And this command to work out the salvation God has worked in us leads us to a deeper understanding so that we will know how to live as citizens of his kingdom. And we will so use this knowledge to live for the glory of God, the growth of his kingdom, and the joy of as many as possible. And it is to this joy that he moves now. First point, work out what God worked in. Second point we get here is glue your eyes to God's Word. Philippians 2, 14-16, Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the Word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, the key phrase in these verses is do all things without grumbling or disputing. Pretty much the rest of the paragraph talks about those words. But the key means of living a life that you're doing all things without grumbling or disputing, here is holding fast to the word of life. In other words, you will not be able to pray, for example. You will not be able to witness, for example, just by folding your arms, gritting your teeth, and saying, I'm going to do it. The way you do it is by holding fast to God's word. The word of of life. And it gets back to the point. This is why you can't earn it. This is why you can't say, oh, look at me. I'm so great. I witnessed to 25 people this week. <laughs> that was the seminary I went to. We were told, if one out of every five people you share the gospel with doesn't come to Christ, you're failing. Do you know the guilt and the shame that I lived with for years after seminary because of that? Yeah, that was painful. And I'm not sure I've still fully overcome that, but that's another point. You can't do it. So God does it through you. How does he do it through you? As you hold fast to the word of life. The word of life! Not the word of laws. There are laws, yes. And as we read and Dan preached for me earlier, I was going to just say, okay, well, there's your sermon. Thanks, Dan. There are laws. But the Bible is not primarily a book of laws. The Bible is a word of life. It's where you can go and hear life. I know 
this whole thing about when I take my eyes off the word of life, I find that whatever I'm looking at, whatever toy or whatever game or whatever I'm coveting, whatever introspective ideas are coming into my head or my heart, when I do, my heart grumbles. My heart picks fights. Why? Because I'm not holding fast to the word of life. So how do we do this? How do we live in such a way that whatever you do is without whining or picking fights? By gluing your eyes to God's word. Man, I hate it when I preach to myself. Listen. You will not be happy, Christian. Let me make this clear. You will not enjoy your life or your Savior. You will not lead a life that pleases you or makes an impact in God's kingdom if you are not regularly, deeply, consistently in God's Word. Period. Everything pulls me away from keeping my eyes glued to God's Word. Everything. Even my good intentions. Do you think Satan would be so intent on making everything pull us away from God's Word if he didn't know that that's where we find our life? Even my desire to bless my children or my wife ends up with me being grumpy if I'm not holding fast to the Word of Life. Everything lands its hooks in my heart and yanks and pulls and pries and tugs. Ah! Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. How? By holding fast to His Word of Life. So, pray. Go to the throne of grace where you will find grace in your time of need. Ask Him. Beg Him. Plead with Him. Implore. Not because He is so unwilling to give. We implore Jesus because I need to be reminded that He is the source of my strength. I cannot work out unless He is working in. Beseech God to give you the attention you need to go to His Word and dig from it the gold and rubies and the emeralds that you need. Go and find the promises and rub them into your pores. I love that image. Praise Jesus. Find the promises you need to make you the man or woman of God that He created you to be because you will find strength nowhere else. And while you are so praying, at the same moment you're praying these prayers, read His Word. Stop reading for a moment and meditate on His Word. Chew on the stake of His Word. Ruminate. Absorb. Dwell on His Word. Then and only then will you find the nourishment you need to flourish in this life. Don't be like sometimes I am where, oh, i got to get my five chapters in today so I can read the Bible through. Stop. Wow. What did John mean when he said that? Abide in Christ. What does that mean? Ask the Lord to help you. 
God will not give you the riches of his word if you do not read it. You can work because God works. Therefore, you must work because God works. And in this case, that work is reading God's word. You know this. I'm going to tell you something you already know. The two most important words in this regard are two words that you've heard me bring to your mind many, many times. Faith and grace. Faith is trusting the promises of God for you in Christ. So go rub them into your pores. Bathe in them. Go back and say it out loud 50 or 60 times so that you can undo your unbelief. And grace. Grace is God's power to accomplish kingdom purposes that you cannot deserve. You need power from God if you are going to meditate on a verse 50 or 60 times throughout the day. You can't do it on your own. You need to have Him work in so you can work out. So in this case, you can have your eyes glued to the Word of God. You must act. You must do so because you were commanded to do so. If you don't read His Word, no one will read it for you. If you don't read His Word, it won't get done. And you must trust His grace. You must trust God's power to make your decisions stick. You must trust God's power to make your discipline effective in your life and in the lives of those who are near you. That's why Jerry Bridges' book is called The Discipline of Grace. Next to the Bible, probably the single most important book I've read. Just unbelievably important. You must discipline yourself. You must rely on grace to make your discipline effective. So go to God's Word. I'll say it one more time. There is no more important discipline than holding fast to the Word of life. There is no more important discipline in growing in the Christian life than soaking in His Word. Yes, you are forgiven. No, you will not be condemned if you miss your quiet time this morning. That is not what we're talking about. You are safe and you are loved. And because you are safe, because you are loved, go to him and meet with him. Read his word like you would read a letter from your spouse when you're miles apart. So work out what God has worked in. Glue your eyes to God's word. And finally, we get to one of the best verses. Rejoice. Why? Because I rejoice. Verse 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here we come to one of the most important statements in Philippians concerning the theme that everyone thinks about when they think of Philippians. Joy, rejoicing. That's what we think of first when we come to Philippians. And normally we go straight to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Amen. But note, note something important in this verse. Paul says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Why does Paul rejoice? 
This is crucial if we're to understand what's going on in Philippians. Why does Paul rejoice? He rejoices because he gets to sacrifice for the good of his friends. What? Those are some pretty countercultural ideas going on there. That doesn't sit well with me. I want to watch the basketball game. I don't want to sacrifice for my friends. And you're happy about doing it? Now in the West, for a number of good reasons, we have always celebrated the individual. Many other cultures, the community is emphasized over the individual. But we, we in the West, according to many thinkers, have become radically, absurdly, incomprehensibly too individualistic. We don't care about the community anymore. All we care about is me. Watch any news show and you will see that radical individualism taking hold. And one of the consequences of this radical individualism is that we cannot read verses 17 and 18 properly unless we're willing to take that worldview out and replace it with the biblical worldview. Which is... Paul assumes here that the Philippians will rejoice because Paul rejoices. Now he's no fool. He knows sin comes into play here. But he has a community mindset. Paul assumes that the Philippians will rejoice because Paul rejoices. And we need to dig further. In what is Paul rejoicing? Paul is rejoicing because he is able to sacrifice for the Philippians' faith. Paul's humble, sacrificial, joyful giving of himself for their good. I chose those three words on purpose because those are the words going straight through our whole passage tonight, last couple of weeks. But why, Paul? Why, Paul, do you rejoice to sacrifice for the good of God's people? Paul would say, it's because such a life is the best one I can live. Why should I rejoice at humbly, obedient, joyful sacrifice? Because there isn't a better life. Now, our culture would reserve this kind of joy for something like inheriting a billion dollars or ten. But Paul responds, no, I have something better than winning the lottery. I am living the best possible life. Be happy for me. Be happy for me that my life is so good that I get to sacrifice for you. Which is why he says rejoice because I rejoice. Now, there is an even more fundamental question. And that is, okay, If I receive that, if I accept that what you're saying is you're pretty stoked because you get to sacrifice for me, but then I recognize that a lot of times my joy comes from crushing candy or watching some Netflix show or doing something, how on earth do I get from finding joy and crushing candy or playing some card game on my phone over to rejoicing because I sacrificed for somebody. Now, some of you in this room don't have to worry about that because you're always sacrificing, and it humbles me. And if I ever grow up, I hope I get to be like you. 
But I'll give you a hint. You cannot, you cannot directly go from finding joy apart from Christ, which is no joy at all, to finding joy as you sacrifice for others. You can't. Because you can't work out something that God has not put in. First and foremost, it takes God the Spirit working in you and through you. But fortunately, the steps that we need to take are outlined here. And that is the first one. Work out what God has worked in. You know the thing about the promises of God? And this is, I'm going to put words in Pastor Benji's mouth right now. But this was a a part of what was going on in the sermon today. You have to know the promises of God before you can rub them into your pores. Not only do you have to know them, but you have to own them. They have to be a part of you because you think about them. And I know that when I'm feeling sorry for myself or when I'm just feeling particularly lazy and I go sitting on my forum that I like to read or I go flipping through Facebook or something like that. I mean, I'm just being honest here. When I, when I do these things, I know my heart isn't happy. And what you need is to put God's word into your heart. What does Psalm 119.10 say? I have hidden in your, your word my heart so that I might not sin against you. Know the work of God. Know the action on your behalf He has already taken so that you can grow closer to Him. Seek the means that God has given His church to live in such a way that what glitters in the world around you grows strangely dim. Primarily, but not only, the second point tonight, glue your eyes to God's Word. Find God in His Word because as you do, you will know Him better. And as you know Him better, you will therefore love Him and trust Him more. Why? Because you'll see that the other things that you've been loving and trusting aren't worth a hoot. And as you do, you will rejoice because Paul rejoices. Why did Paul rejoice? Paul rejoiced because he knew his God was better than avoiding beatings and shipwrecks and stonings and whippings. He knew that God was better than all that. And he knew that all of our struggles are light and momentary afflictions compared to the weight of glory awaiting us. Rejoice because Paul rejoices. You must choose to rejoice before you are able to rejoice. You must decide that sacrificial living is the best you can have and then go to God the Spirit and ask Him to give you that joy. And then go forth and live like He did already. That is something I learned from Bill Bright. Hey, rejoice. Believe the promise and then go live as if it is true. You see, what you rejoice in says a lot about you. When you turn to look at God and what He has done in you and through you and for you, you will find hope. But as you go to your various soul cancers, what you will find is emptiness. 
and you'll find yourself that much easier to turn away from the promises of God and you'll find despair. Instead, go to Him, find in Him, find in His Word hope. You will find that His power is already at work in you so that you can fight those temptations. Know Him better so that you will love Him and trust Him more. And Lord, once again, we confess we cannot do this apart from You, but we must have You working in us and through us and for us. God, I pray that You would bless us. I pray that You would give us the hope we need as we turn to You each day and as we enjoy basketball games too. But Lord, as we do enjoy those things, let us enjoy them because You are in them as well. Bless us, Jesus, so that we will be a blessing to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.